0: So um yeah, so our uh welcome Tesno. Our speaker today is uh, Jim from uh Hong Kong. Um I attend the the meeting in Hong Kong every now and then. It's always good to get a, a, a step ahead of what's happening here on this side of the planet. So um runs a good meeting and I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey. So Jim, it's all yours. There's no time limit, so talk away and uh that's it. It's all thank you for being here. All right. Thanks for inviting me, Marcia. Um, yeah, my name is Jim, uh, and I'm an alcoholic. And um, I guess just to start out, cover some of the basics. Um, my sobriety date is uh, March 3rd of 2018. So I've been sober for... I looked on my app this morning when Marcia asked me my sobriety date. I knew my sobriety date, but wanted to look at... Uh, it's four months, uh, four years, four months, and 16 days. I think, I think it said it, I might 1,599 days. So tomorrow will be 1,600 days. Um, anyway, one day at a time. Um, so that's my sobriety date, uh, 2018, March. But that's not when I started trying to get sober. That's not my first AA meeting date. Uh that's not my first uh, recovery type uh program that I ever went to. Uh, my first uh AA meeting uh was on July 13th of 2016 in New York City. I was uh home um for uh my annual visit and uh this one was extra special because I was getting a knee replacement. Uh, because of uh, many of the falls and accidents I had while drunk. Uh, My first uh, attempt at, uh, I guess, uh, a formalized uh, recovery was in uh, September of 2009 when uh, my boss... uh, threatened me uh, with my job, and uh, I went to the Addiction Institute of New York, which at the time was at uh, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, now called Mount Sinai West Hospital, and um, yeah, I was in that program for about six months, and they offered two styles of programs. They offered uh, a moderation management program or an abstinence program. And being, uh, at the time, I I didn't really identify as alcoholic, but being a problem drinker who knew I was in trouble from my drinking, uh, all I wanted to do was learn how to drink responsibly. So I chose moderation management. I certainly didn't want to abstain from alcohol. Alcohol was important to me. So... Um, I went, uh, to that program for about six months and, uh, I graduated. I received a certificate that says I successfully completed the New York Addiction Institute's program of moderation management. But the thing is, I bullshitted my way through that program for the six months that I was in it. It was certainly not honest, uh, at all. And, uh. Yeah. But, uh, you know, before that, um, I guess really uh, as, as early as 2003 is when I think my problem really kicked off where I could see, you know, to myself, I could say to myself, wait a minute, like, Jim used to drink every night after work, but now you're drinking during the day because I wasn't working, I was in between jobs, and, uh, and that time, uh, you know, it was, it was a downturn in my industry, and I, I, there was a layoff, and I received this wonderful severance payment, and all that kind of good, good stuff, you know, but I had lots of time on my hands, and all of a sudden, I'm drinking all the time during the day for no reason at all, and, uh, you know, I used to think my drinking was because I needed to drink after work. You know, that's why I drink. I need a drink after work to like deal with the stress, deal with all the idiots that I had to work with. (laughs) That type of stuff, you know. But now I'm drinking like just a drink. And I'm like, wow, what's going on? But, you know, that's all I did. I just kind of registered up here a little bit. And, uh, And then over the course of 2003 to 2006, you know, uh, it just progressed more and more. And to the point where 2006, I was uh, going back to work in a high power job in New York city. And, uh, I was talking with the person that was going to be my boss. And we had met at, at a hotel bar to have a drink and chat about what it was going to be like to work again together. Cause we had worked previously together back in the nineties. The and, uh, and, um, I went to pick up a drink that I had ordered um, and um, I, had, I, I was trying to, to have cut back so that I you know, uh, was clear-headed uh, for this uh, kind of chit-chat. Not really an interview. It was kind of the job was a done deal. But I, anyway, I went to reach for that drink on the table and, with my right arm And I was like shaking like this, you know, and I was like, holy shit, what's going on? And I had to literally reach out with my other hand and control my arm and pick up my drink and bring it to my mouth. And my uh, soon to be boss said, what, what's wrong with you? And I said, uh, oh, I, I, I've got uh, an injury in my neck and it's causing me spasms in my arm. And I, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to see a specialist that they're, they're going to take care of it, you know, you know, just more bullshit, you know, anyway. Um, anyway, that's the, that, that's the last job I ever held. Uh, that was from, I was in that job from 2006 to 2010. That was the boss that gave me the ultimatum in 2009 to do something about my drinking or else. And that's when I went to the moderation management program for six months and thought, I graduated. I'm good. So yeah, that's kind of my, just a big picture of the um, beginning of my recovery journey Uh, realization in 2003 that, uh, my drinking's not what I thought it used to be. And then, uh, 2006, three years later, realizing, wow, I can't even control my hand when I've cut back on the uh, alcohol consumption, you know, I've got the shakes. And then, uh, and then almost four years of working back in the industry in New York that I was in in a high pressure job, spiraling out of control uh, to the point where finally an ultimatum about losing my job by my boss. Uh, in 2009, and then losing that job in 2010, getting fired. You know, of course the words were firing you because you're an alcoholic weren't used, but uh, there was a downsizing and my job was being consolidated and uh, eliminated and, and combined with another position. So it was a job elimination, <laughs> it was the official terminology. And uh, and of course, you know, they also sweetened that by paying me off out of my contract. So, you know, that that helped my alcoholic mind uh, soothe myself a lot about that too, you know. But uh, we'll leave it there for that. And let's go way back to the very beginning. Since you've given me an open book as far as how long I can share. Do we have five hours? No, just kidding. Um, so uh i'm american i was born in the midwest of the united states um in a city called saint louis yes that's named after a saint saint louis of france catholic and uh yeah i was brought up in the roman catholic church by a very devout mother um on my father's side not so much um Christian, I guess you would say, but uh, nothing, no no particular uh, sect that they followed. Um, But uh, yeah, on my mother's side, it was a different story. So, um, a typical kind of middle-class U.S. Midwestern family, Uh, one brother, mother, father, brick house, two cars in the garage, front lawn, backyard with a fence, that type of existence. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, at first, I led what I felt was an idyllic life. I think most of us probably did. Um, there are exceptions. I know that. But but um, somewhere, I don't know, around six or seven years old, I became aware that my life wasn't so idyllic and that uh, I was kind of living at home in a tornado all of a sudden because my parents started fighting and uh, that's when uh, I would say my life went from being idyllic to very fear fearful because uh, you know I I I didn't like that, of course, watching my mom and dad fight, uh, verbally at first, but over time, it, it, uh, advanced to more serious fighting. And, um, so as a little six or seven year old, you know, I used to try to run away from that. And when I was that small, I would just like hide down in the basement of our home amongst the boxes of, you know, stuff packed away. And, uh, create like a little protective fort and put my fingers in my ears and sing myself a little song or something so that I couldn't hear the screaming going on upstairs. And uh, then all the racket, you know, and as I got a little bit older and this all continued, you know, and I could like jump on my bike and uh, ride, ride off, I, I would do that. I'd spend the whole day, you know, away, especially when, when mom and dad were home on the weekends and they were fighting. I'd spend the whole day out of the house, you know, on my bicycle, uh with my brother or with my friends, and you know, come back as dusk settled in and the street lights came on and and uh hoping that the tornado that was my family life now had settled down for the evening and uh we could turn on the TV and watch, you know, Disney's, you know, uh what was that called? Disney's not the uh uh, whatever you get the idea. We were, you know, we had all those late 1960s, early 1970s programs on the TV at night. Uh, Wild Kingdom. Oh, that's the one. Wild Kingdom. Love that show. Uh, and uh, this the, the 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 fear uh in the household grew and grew because my father got uh progressively more violent. So he went from just verbally assaulting my mother uh, to uh, his next move was to spit on her. I guess he felt that that showed his, his absolute disgust for her. And uh, so during the argument, you know, he'd make his point by spitting on her. And then the spitting led to shoving. And, uh, and, then, and then the shoving uh, led to falling you know, being pushed over the coffee table or down the steps, that type of thing. I do remember one time for sure that the police came to our house and my dad was taken away in handcuffs. Uh, but he came back really fairly quickly. I can't remember if it was that same, later that same day or night or, or the next day, but he came back really quickly and all he was was really pissed just really pissed that she had called the cops and that they had taken him away um so yeah i mean wow just um i was a bundle of nerves as a kid like that with dealing with that then i heard started hearing the divorce and separation language right and that was even more fearful like what's going to happen to me What's gonna, you know, am I gonna be, you know, like what, you know, I was not stupid. I had seen things on TV about divorce. I hadn't experienced any of that in my own life with any of my friends. Everybody in, in that I hung out with, we, it was like, like I said, I, I, St. Louis is a Catholic city. I, one of the first questions you get asked in St. Louis is what parish do you belong to? You know, that, that was your identifier. It was like, uh, uh, it it kind of identified your socioeconomic situation too, depending on what parish you belong to. And uh, divorce just wasn't a thing, Um, at least not that I knew. So, you know, I'm thinking to myself, where am I going to live? What school am I going to go to? What, you know, what about my friends? So it was fear and it was all me, me, me. What's, you know, what's going to go on with me? and um so anyway they did separate they did divorce and then another big hole happened so to speak my my dad just kind of skipped town um he actually fought for custody at first but then when he lost he just skipped town and um I, I I don't know. I just couldn't understand that. Not only did he not did he skip town, he started skipping child support payments. So my mother, who hadn't worked as a a married woman, she worked before she got married, but she hadn't worked. She was a house you know housewife and a mother, bringing up two kids, doing the all the usual stuff, taking care of the house, cooking, cleaning, washing clothes, packing lunches, you know playing you know chauffeur to different events you know whatever she's now a single mother and you know trying to support two kids wanting to continue to send us to catholic catholic private schools for the rest of our education through elementary school and then into high school and uh, you know now the money's cut off from child support she's doing a pretty basic clerical job at a Catholic insurance company associated with our parish. You know, so just more fear and more anger and resentment, you know, totally toward my dad, that's for sure. Um, About like, why did he do this? Why did he run away? And he moved out to LA. Uh, Like, I didn't even know we knew anybody that lived out on the West Coast. Like, it's like, why, how would he end up out on the West Coast? we're Midwestern people. All of our family kind of is in the generalized area of the Midwest of the U.S. And um, yeah, so, you know, then uh, now I've got fears about, you know, am I going to continue in school? Uh, And then my mother was insistent that we continue on with private education in the, in the Catholic uh, school system. And so that meant I had to get after school job and, uh, and then also a summer job uh, working at the school and um, to help pay the tuition. And I, I was just like, wow, you know, what happened? <laughs> All of a sudden my life is just completely upended. And, uh, you know, I, I was envious and jealous of other kids because, you know, they weren't working after school they 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 weren't working their whole summer break to pay their tuition at this private school. They, you know, they, you know, uh, you know. As, as I got into high school, you know, they had cars. They were driving already. My mother was still driving the old beat up car that she got in the divorce settlement. You know, and, uh, so the the next big trauma in my life came when I was uh, just out of high school, starting into uh, college, university. And uh, I realized, uh, I hadn't realized this for quite a while, but of course didn't say anything and and kept it a big secret. Uh, I realized I was gay. And uh, so, I was dealing with a lot of fear around that too, Um, you know, certainly wasn't revealing it, uh, especially once I was in high school. And so basically I went into the avoidance technique there with uh, not going to school dances and anything like that, that would make me have to socialize with the opposite sex and, you know, bring a date or anything like that. And uh, uh, so, I became a little bit you know I would say reclusive um, during during high school because of that and uh, and secretive and um, well while, while this this you know coming to terms with my sexuality was happening, I met an older guy. Uh, who was gay, who was a teacher at the school, and who kind of took me under his wing. And uh, and my my mother actually encouraged the relationship from the standpoint of she felt I needed a, a male figure in my life, a father figure, uh, so to speak, since my, my own father was absent out in California. And uh, so this teacher uh, started taking me to cultural events, museums, the symphony, uh, cultural type movies and things like that, out to dinner, to fancy restaurants and things. Um, And over the course of time, um, that became uh, an actual relationship. Uh, And eventually, a sexual relationship. And uh, he's the person that introduced me really to alcohol. And this is where alcohol comes into my story. And uh, it progresses really quickly from there because, um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I was seduced by the allure uh, of, of the alcohol uh, that, that he, seemed to enjoy in a reasonable way, you know, we would go out to dinner, we would have a cocktail before dinner, we would have a glass of wine with dinner, we would have an after dinner drink, like a brandy or something, you know, this was all new to me. I mean, my family did not really drink at all. I mean, I maybe would have had a sip of my dad's beer in the backyard during a barbecue when I was a little kid or something but this was really my introduction to alcohol and, and drinking like a gentleman, like it says in the Big Book. And I just took to it like, um, you know, a fish to water, <laughs> I guess you would say. And, um, but, you know, when I had my first real drink like that, I, that, that feeling, I don't know, it was different to me. I just, uh, I, uh, I felt like it was a magic elixir and uh it, it relaxed me it made me feel more confident i i felt more at ease to be able to talk and, and share my thoughts and feelings and that just set off a course for me for the rest of my life and um once my mother found out about this relationship, that it was not just a, uh, father like, um, uh, you know, mentoring situation that, uh, it had turned into much more than that. And I came out to her as gay. She gave me an ultimatum. I was 17 going on 18. And, um, I was a freshman just finishing my freshman year of the university. And, uh, I got that, uh, you know, you're living in my house, young man. You're going to live by my rules. You cannot be gay. You know, you, you're, you're, you are sinning. You are a sinner. You need to go to our parish priest and confess your sins and never do this again. This is a mortal sin you're committing. And, uh, and then to top that off, you need to go see our family doctor. Because you are you are mentally ill, you need to, to talk to a psychiatrist. He can recommend somebody for you to speak to to be cured of this mental disease. And I was like, Mom, this is who I am. This is, I, I don't view it as a sin, nor do I view it as a disease, a mental disease, being gay. Anyway, so um, the ultimatum was. Uh, put put to fruition and she she threw me out and uh, she was uh, able to she knew I was 17 not quite 18 so she couldn't just throw me out on the street by the laws of Missouri so she uh, was able to track down my father and she bought me a plane ticket and she sent me out to California uh, to Los Angeles to spend the summer with him uh, under the auspices that I would think about whether I was really gay or not, and uh, whether I when I came back, I submit to her demands and uh, go confess my sins and get myself cured. Um, well, when I got out to L.A., my dad picked me up at the airport who, you know, I felt like a stranger to. I mean, you know, I got a card from him, uh, like for Christmas and my birthday, and, and that was about it. Uh, I had seen him like one time since he left St. Louis at a family reunion um, you know over the course of like a two day weekend and that was it so I'm sitting in the car with you know almost feels like an absolute stranger and he's you know angry like what the hell has happened that your mother has tracked me down and has sent you out here to spend the summer with me (laughs) and You know, so I came out to him in the car on the way from LAX to where he lived. And um, to my surprise, sort of, because I had kind of heard some stuff from my older brother, but I wasn't sure I wanted to believe it. (laughs) Anyway, my dad sitting next to me after I come out to him turns to me as he's driving and says, well, I have something to tell you too, I'm gay. And you know, uh, I, the whole reason I left St. Louis and came out to the West Coast is because of my partner that I was with. And you know, and, uh, and I basically started a new life. Uh, the life that I didn't get to have when I was forced to marry your mother and lead a life that I didn't want to leave, lead and have kids that I didn't really want to have. And um, needless to say, that was an interesting summer we spent together. Um, There were funny moments of it, going to gay bars together And uh, I remember one instance in particular where um, we were at a bar called the Toy Tiger in Los Angeles, and an entertainer named Rudy Delamar was playing the piano. It was a piano bar. He dressed as a woman from the waist up and a man from (laughs) the waist down. And he sang songs and uh, people sang along, but then he also did like a comedy routine in between. And a big part of his comedy routine was picking on people in the audience. And uh, at this one time when we were there, he, he lasered his eyes in on me and my dad standing together. And he started making the daddy son jokes that will often happen in the gay community about an older man with a younger man. And my dad was getting embarrassed, and he was trying to explain, "No, no, you don't understand. This is my son. This is really my biological son." <laughs> and Rudy was like laughing and joking, and you know, "Oh, sure it is. Sure it is, Daddy." You yeah. <laughs> know. Anyway, um, and one other funny story about that is my dad introduced me to a guy that I ended up dating for a while. That he knew at a country western bar that he used to go go to called Oil Hand Oil Can Harry's, and uh, so you know it's kind of interesting to have your dad set you up with a boyfriend for a while, uh, but uh, you know alcohol just continued as uh, part of my life out there. You know uh, when I came back to St Louis, um, uh, I. Uh, You know, I hadn't changed my mind about who I was uh, and what I wanted in my life. I wanted to be me. I didn't want to live a lie. After seeing what, why my father abandoned my brother and myself and went out to the West Coast and kind of disappeared. I was like, I I certainly don't want to be like that. I don't want to live a lie. Um, You know, get married, have kids that I don't want, and then abandon them, you know? So... I, of course, made the decision that, um, you know, I couldn't live there with my mother. So I was 18 now. And so she said, get out, you know. My, the teacher mentor friend of mine that I was in the relationship with helped me to get situated living on campus with uh, some emergency housing provided by the social services department of the university. And uh, yeah, I started, I, I, you know, uh, more pressure though, and now I'm putting myself through university uh, on my own with loans and work study program uh, but at the same time, uh, alcohol now took even more of a focus because now i've I'm open openly gay i' I've got f- friends I can be honest and open with. We start going to bars. Uh, now I start not so much drinking like a gentleman like I was taught by my mentor I start partying you know uh, binge drinking too um, and that goes on through all the rest of, of college university and I graduate and I get a job and that's when my my like daily drinking for the need of decompressing started and continued for the next um, 35 years. Uh, and so that, you know, that pretty much, uh, you know, is the story of my alcohol use, you know, the, that 35 years of daily drinking took you know, at first was fine, you know, I, I, I was performing well, getting promoted, uh, moving up the ladder, uh, jumping from one prestigious company to, a nu- to the next. Um, you know, got myself in, uh, out of St. Louis to New York City. You know, what a dream for a Midwestern boy uh, now to be living in New York and working at a, at a very prominent company and uh, playing at that lifestyle of jetting around uh, the country and the world on business. Uh, you know, Drinking on the plane, drinking in the lounges, drinking after work, drinking at work uh, client dinners, uh, drinking, 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 drinking uh, every day, and especially at the end of the day when I felt I needed to relax, and um, like I said, that got gets to the point where um, it start it does start affecting my job eventually, and I received that ultimatum finally uh that I talked about at the beginning uh of this session and uh, so let me just talk then now um, I think pretty much covers the drunkologue i mean um this latter part um, of the story uh, that really brought me into recovery in AA is uh, actually and, and, right, and after the addiction institute little stint for six months is when really things got uh, bad, really bad. Uh, like the you know the comment is this is a progressive disease, and my story definitely reflects that. Um, Once I admitted I had some type of problem, which is what I did with the Addiction Institute, I was a problem drinker, and I needed to manage my drinking. Um, That started me into lying and hiding my drinking. So that's how I was managing my drinking. (laughs) I was lying about it, and I was hiding it. And yes, it did make me cut down to some extent because I wasn't as free to drink like I used to be. Uh, but uh, I was still you know, drinking a lot more than a uh, normal person. Once I started injuring myself, uh, as time went along with some, some of these drunken falls and, and my body started reacting because it couldn't process the... The liquor anymore because, unbeknownst to me at first, I was starting to do damage to my liver and my kidneys from my excessive alcohol consumption over these many decades. Now, um, I, you know, I, I started having blackouts and and, uh, and and like I said, I was injuring myself and and uh, that that is what eventually led me uh, to AA at my first AA meeting in July of 2016, because as I had said, I flew, I, I uh, had fl- flown home to New York um, to have a knee replacement. I was living in Shanghai at the time. How did I get to Shanghai? Uh, you know, in, in the course of all of this, in my career in New York, I, I met someone, okay, uh, you know, kind of an idyllic little scenario. We met at Gay Pride 2000 in New York City and we've been at together ever since. So uh, uh, 2002, sorry, (laughs) Gay Pride 2002. So we just celebrated uh, 20 years together. Um, So, uh, you know, I was at the peak of my career when we met in 2002. Um, and, uh, he was just beginning his career and, uh, we're about 10 years apart. And, um, as I went downhill, he went uphill and, uh, I was going downhill because of my drinking and how it was affecting my career. And he was going uphill because he was an up-and-coming architect in New York city, uh, designing some prominent hotels. In the city and uh, eventually he got recruited to uh, move to China and work for a company and uh, at that point my career had imploded because of my alcohol use and uh, that's as I said when the, the boss that gave me the ultimatum to do something about my drinking basically fired me six months later after I had graduated it was kind of ironic that you know addiction institute told me i had successfully completed the moderation management program yet my boss said things have not gotten better <laughs> and i'm sorry but you know we're going to have to eliminate your job through a, a downsizing and a consolidation but here's some money to ease the pain and uh so at that point uh that's you know uh we 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 took up uh, the offer uh, for him to take a position in China and move to Shanghai. And um, through the whole time I was living in Shanghai, I wasn't working. And again, uh, you know, the same scenario as uh, I had, I had uh, said before like the, the daily drinking turned into, you know, day and nightly drinking. Like, like I was just drinking all day while he was at work. And sitting there thinking about throwing myself off the balcony to kill myself because I just didn 't know what to do about it, and all these crazy things I was doing you know his parents came to visit and, and he had to go away on a business trip to Beijing while they were staying with us, and I was nervous that they were staying with us to begin with, so I was drinking on the slide even more and and one night I went out and was drinking, and came back, and I had blacked out in the elevator. And the the security people in the building complex found me up, going up and down on the floor of the elevator, and you know realized who I was and what apartment I belonged to, and knocked on the door, only to have you know his parents open it up and you know have their drunk, passed out, blacked out son-in-law. <laughs> put into the apartment and said, you know, he belongs here, take care of him. (laughs) You know, those kind of incredibly embarrassing moments. Um, But like I said, the the medical issues just kept uh, getting worse. I was finally told by a liver specialist that my, you know, my liver was having serious issues. They started doing tests on me. I, at first, it was an enlarged liver and a fatty liver. Then they actually did a biopsy on me, and I had uh, the beginnings of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and, uh, you know, I, wa- I wasn't thinking clearly, I wasn't functioning properly, um, and uh, I couldn't keep food down, uh, I couldn't walk straight, even when I was semi sober. And I was having, like I said, these falls. Eventually, damaged my left knee so much it had to be replaced. Went back to saying, uh, went back to New York to to have that done, and uh, I just was uh, finally I thought at my wits end, and I decided to either check myself into a rehab or maybe go to AA. I had been told about AA a lot, but. Um, I never wanted to go to AA because I had heard that a lot of it involved the word God. And I didn't want anything to do with that. I didn't, you know, my mother rejected me because of her devout Catholic religious beliefs. And uh, you know, uh, I had very, very little to do with her uh, for the longest time. Once um, I was out of living at home. Uh, we didn't talk for one stretch for six or eight years. I think it was six, six years, six years. We didn't even speak in any way, shape or form, zero contact. So anyway, I decided that I'd try AA first before I would try an inpatient rehab type situation. So I went to, I went to AA Uh, The way I I did it was by calling the New York Intergroup Hotline. I spoke to a guy for about 45 minutes on the hotline. Uh, He kind of asked, you know, some questions, was very kind, gentle, patient. And uh, eventually we figured out that I was gay. Well, he figured out that I was gay and I figured out he was gay. And he's like, you you know, we have LGBTQ meetings. Would you like? to maybe go to one of those as your first AA meeting. Maybe you'll feel more comfortable if you're, you know, in a, in a community that that supports you like that. And I I said, sure. And he's like, well, there, there's a beginner's meeting, an LGBTQ group called Lambda West, that, that's very close to where you live. Um, why don't you go to that? And so that's what I did. And that, that was my first AA meeting, July 13 uh, 2016. And uh, I, I, you know, uh, I've always been the kind of person that like, if I'm going to commit to something, I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all the way. Uh, And uh, so I went to that beginner's meeting, they stressed temporary sponsorship. So I got myself a temporary sponsor that first night at my first AA meeting and uh, he Talk to me about the things he expected from me. To call him every day. If I don't get him, leave a voicemail. Don't just text. Uh, go to a meeting every day for the next ninety days. More if I can, since I wasn't working. You know. Um, he gave me the book Living Sober to read, and said we'll meet in a week, and we're going to talk about what you read. Uh, and review it, and then we're gonna start into the big book. Uh, you know, he wanted me to get numbers of other fellows in the program and call in and check in with them every day too, not just with him, and I was doing all that, but I was still drinking, you know? Again, I, I you know, I, I was cutting back, trying, but lying. My sponsor says that, trying is just lying. And that's what I was doing. You know, I was going to meetings and claiming five days sober or 12 days sober when in fact I had had some type of a drink or two at some point that day or the day before, you know, uh, to just kind of like keep uh, keep me going. I felt I needed it to keep me going. So I lived that life for about six weeks in AA until I went back to Shanghai, where I was living, enjoying the fellowship there. Got myself a sponsor there, who was a atheist. Um, first time, you know, like when I was in New York and and went to that first meeting, you know, I w- I wasn't even thinking that way. But by the by the time I got to Shanghai, uh, back to Shanghai. After that six weeks in New York working with that first sponsor, you know, after we read Living Sober and then moved on to the big book and did step one, he started in on step two with me. And I immediately started, you know, having negative pushback about this higher power, power greater than, God of your own understanding thing. And uh, so, you know, I was kind of thankful when I had to leave and go back to Shanghai. So when I got to Shanghai and I discovered that there was this atheist guy, uh, in the Shanghai fellowship, I was like, I listened to him in meetings for about two weeks. And I thought, yeah, I want what he has. He's sober and he's doing it in a way that doesn't involve any kind of, you know, God or higher power. I thought, uh, you know, certainly nothing to do with religion. And, uh, so I started working with him and, uh, we didn't get very far, you know, uh, I was doing the same trying, but lying, uh, working the program, so to speak outwardly, um, uh, making a good show of it. But, you know, we got to step two and three and, uh, his advice on those steps were, well, let's just kind of skip over those. Let's kind of fake it through those until you make it. And uh, he just had me start right in on a step four inventory. And um, that was a disaster. I I relapsed like (laughs) within an hour of sitting down at at my desk, starting to write out my resentments list. Yeah. Number one at the top. I think I, I number one at the top, I wrote my mother, uh, and then my dad. And then just went down the list. My brother, my aunt, my uncle, <laughs> the Catholic Church, my school teachers, father so <laughs> and so, sister so and so. On and on and on. Anyway, and you know, after about an hour, I, you know. Push the fuck it button. Can we curse here? <laughs> Push the fuck it button and went down to the Family Mart, that uh, is like a 7-Eleven in China, and uh, bought about my usual bottle of of Smirnoff, and uh, and got drunk. You know, because that's how what I knew. That's how I knew to deal with life was get drunk. You know, when I was a kid, I escaped. By running away, getting away from my parents arguing, hiding in the basement or riding my bike all day long outside the house, that 's how I escaped that 's how I got away from my fears and my resentment, my anger and my yeah, and now, you know it was it was you know run away by getting drunk uh, don't deal i can 't deal, can't deal with this stuff. So I'm just gonna escape and black out. So um, after about six months, uh, my partner, his career continuing to go upward, my my career, dead, dead stop. And my life heading completely into unmanageability. And actually uh, my liver doctor telling me, you know, Listen, you know, I can tell you're not, you haven't stopped drinking. Your liver levels would be adjusting themselves if you had. So, you know, you can lie to others, but you can't lie to me. You're going to be dead if you keep drinking. So, my partner got an offer with another company to move here to Hong Kong. And that's how I ended up here. And I joined the fellowship here. You know, that's the only thing I did right, I guess you could say, is I kept coming back. I didn't give up. I was persistent. I, I, you know, I think we all, I mean, I know, I knew deep down I had a problem. And I wanted to do something about it. I just didn't know what and how. And the idea of giving up alcohol completely just frightened the hell out of me. I mean, alcohol was like my best friend. It was there every time I needed it. Every pain, every sorrow, every fear, every anxiety that I went through, I reached out for it and it was there. So I I just, the concept of giving it up completely just frightened the hell out of me. And uh, we got here to Hong Kong, uh, joined into the fellowship here right away. Um, I waited a little longer to get a sponsor this time. Uh, listening around for people who had what I thought was sobriety that I wanted. And uh, I also got a theory like my, my my first sponsor, my temporary sponsor, he was about uh, six years sober and he had sponsored people before. My second sponsor in Shanghai, he was three years sober and he had never sponsored anybody when he sponsored me. And so I thought to myself here in Hong Kong, well, I'm going to look for somebody maybe who's got a ton of sobriety and has sponsored a ton of people. Maybe that's the key to this. (laughs) So I picked this guy, Billy. Billy is a legend here. (laughs) He's now got 41 years of sobriety and uh, you know, he's sponsored a lot of people over the years and he's seen a lot of things and he's done a lot of things uh, so I asked him to be my sponsor and, uh, that, that was August of 2017 and, uh, we started working together, but by December of 2017, uh, I knew that it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter who my sponsor was, how many years my sobriety, my sponsor had, uh, how many people they had sponsored before, uh. I, I, I needed something more. Uh, and so I did decide uh, after working with him from August to December, after having a, a, another horrific stint with injuring myself and getting into the hospital, I decided to go to an inpatient rehab program. And um, I went to uh, one in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I was there for three months. And it was a, uh, a program specifically, uh, or a, a section of a rehab specifically for the LGBTQ community. Um, and uh, when I got ready to leave from there, I knew I wasn't ready. I knew I wasn't ready to leave. But my insurance company told me I was ready to leave. And, uh, and I wasn't willing to foot the rest of the bill myself to stay longer. And so I left there after three months with a chip on my shoulder, a resentment about the fact that I didn't get to finish what I went there to do. And, uh, I, And that was the longest period ever in my life since I was, you know, introduced to alcohol. That was the longest period in my life, that three months that I didn't have a drink. But, you know, so I wasn't craving alcohol when I got out of there that day after three months. But I was obsessing about it still in the sense that I knew that it would soothe these horrible feelings I had about my insurance company and about the fact that I didn't get to finish my program of recovery at this rehab and so I got to the airport and I decided to get drunk to soothe my feelings you know to quell my my anger and my anxiety over this whole situation that I was put into it was thrust upon me. I didn't have anything to do with this. You know, I'm the victim here. So <clears throat> drank at the airport, managed to get back to Hong Kong, though, and my partner picked me up at the airport and faked my way through being sober. I thought that lasted for about a day and a half. I was just out of control um, after that short of a time. Out of control. It it was like my alcoholism went into hyperdrive. And uh, my partner, you know, it's now 2018. uh, February of 2018. We've been together since 2002. He had enough. He said to me, I can't deal with this anymore. I, you know, you're going to have to do this on your own and, you know, get out. And so I moved into a hotel right right near the apartment we were living in here in Hong Kong. And um, I had a spiral out of control living alone in that hotel for the next few days until the point where he came and checked in on me and I, I was. A mess, and I had to be taken to the hospital. And uh, and then he asked me when I was at the hospital. He said, "Do you really want to do something about this? Do you really want to get better? Do you want to do it for yourself?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Then you need to go back and finish what you started at that rehab." And I said, "Okay." So I was I was back at that rehab with him about a week from when I left. And I spent another little over a month there on my own dime, 100% me, because I wanted it. I wanted to get better. I wanted a solution. I didn't want to live like that anymore. And I didn't want to lose my husband. And I think back you know I was willing to kill myself, I was willing to jump off the balcony of the apartment in shanghai because i didn't I didn't see any other way out, but you know it was the idea of losing my my partner that really i i just guess like flipped something in me and i and I, 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 I wanted it not only to save my marriage, but to also, you know, save myself. And so uh, I, I spent that next month or so there and a couple revelations, I use that word loosely, revelations happened to me while I was there that last month. One thing that I had always heard about the higher power part of this program is that it can be anything or nothing um but you know i i from the very f- first beginnings of my aa in new york um i went to a meeting called high noon at the lgbt center down in the west village one sunday and it's in the david geffen auditorium there and it, it's like a meeting i mean it to me, it was a big meeting. I hear there's meetings like 2,000 people in LA and stuff, but I've never been to one of those. This meeting though, for me, was huge. It was, uh, it was like 300 people in this auditorium. And uh, I had heard that concept that, you know, you can use the group of drunks as your higher power, the fellowship. And When I was at that meeting, I thought to myself about that. And I thought, you know, people got up and, and uh, they passed a microphone around the room. And ask people to like if they had a, a milestone or if they were counting days or they were celebrating a, a AA birthday to you know announce it. And that went on, it seemed like forever. And I thought to myself, wow, if you added up all the sobriety in this room, it's probably like a thousand years of sobriety. That's pretty impressive. And and when I was in rehab, I kind of reflected back on that. And 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 when I was doing that one. One day I, I thought to myself, well, yeah, but how does that work? Especially when it comes to the rest of this program where you, you know it talks about like prayer and meditation in step 11, how, how am I gonna make this program work for me there, not being like a religious person? And I heard this person share, it was a, a counselor there who shared at the rehab who said, for them, you know, prayer is making a petition to something or someone, you know, in a religious sense, to a God. But, you know, prayer is a, a petition for help. And meditation is getting to a state of calmness where you can listen and understand. So it's like listening for the answers is what meditation is about. So he said for him, going to meetings and sharing was his version of praying. That was praying to him because he's asking for help. He's sharing his problems, asking for answers, looking for experience from other people in the fellowship for how they, they've found their sobriety. And so sharing is praying. And sitting in meetings quietly, listening to others share about their experience, strength, and hope, is is his form of meditation. And I thought to myself, "Okay, that makes sense. I can make that work." And so when I actually started working the steps with uh, when I got when I got out after that final month, and I came back to Hong Kong and went back to working my steps with Billy, my my my. Uh, Old timer sponsor. We started out, you know, at step one and worked through. And, uh, you know, I came to believe that the fellowship was a, a power greater than myself, that the collective whole was stronger than any one single me. <laughs> and, uh, and I started using the, the, the method of substitution when I read the literature. Like anytime it said that G-O-D word, I didn't use group of drunks or great outdoors or good orderly direction or gift of desperation. I just substituted whenever it said God, I substituted the program, the fellowship, the steps, the principles. And I'd say 98% of the time when I did that, this The sentence, the paragraph, the chapter all still made perfectly good sense, at least to me. So it was working for me to do that, just substituting my version of a higher power, power greater than myself, into the literature. And I kind of like, I think I, I, think I just, you know, they say willingness, open-mindedness, and honesty are the three essentials of recovery, uh, you know, I, first of all, I got honest with myself, um, about that. I really wanted to stop drinking for me, not because of other people pressuring me or hassling me or threatening me, That I really wanted it and that I wanted to live a better life that didn't involve alcohol. Secondly, became willing to do what it took for that to happen and not just try, but to actually do. And then the final thing, the open-mindedness part, to take and run with the latitude that you're given in the program of AA, if you choose that program to work um, for your recovery. Uh, you're given the latitude to choose anything you want or nothing at all, the way I see it. You just can't choose yourself. It's the only caveat I've ever heard people say. Because so, self is, is what has been always my problem. You know, My, my sponsor likes to say this is a dis-ease an uneasiness with self, a disease of self. We are generally characterized by people that are self-obsessed, selfish, self-pitying, self-sabotaging, um, and you can go on down the list. So, you know, when 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 I come across things like you know. What's God's will for me? Well, what's the will of the fellowship for me? They want me to stay sober, plain and simple. That's it. That's it. For me to stay sober, one day at a time. But the idea that I can ever drink again has to be smashed. You know, that I didn't understand. I heard that one day at a time thing at first, and I thought to myself, well, that, that seems silly. But, you know, the book clearly says the idea that you can ever drink like a normal person has to be smashed. That's the abstinence. And then how do I accomplish that? Well, I accomplish that one day at a time. Yeah, absolutely. So here in Hong Kong, when I got back, we didn't have a secular meeting. So I helped start one. Because I figured, you know, if I had struggled this much for this long, and, you know, like I said, I had been introduced to AA for the longest time, I, my, my liver doctor said, go to AA. You know, I had friends say, go to AA. You know, uh, my partner said, why don't you try AA? And I was like, no way, AA. because <laughs> no G-O-D for me. Um, and uh Yeah. So, you know, I thought, you know, gosh, I can't, I can't believe that a city like this doesn't have a secular meeting. Um, And like, I, you know, I got on the New York intergroup website and I was using the filter functions that they had on there. And I was like, wow, look at New York. They've got like, you know, every type of meeting imaginable. They got atheist meetings and they got secular meetings and agnostic meetings and they've got gay meetings and they got straight meetings and they got, you know, like everything under the sun here in Hong Kong, it was like just pretty much traditional plain old meetings <laughs> so um, so I also decided to help start a an LGBTQ group here. So my point about that is I started trying to give back pretty much as as soon as I got sober and uh and I have found that, you know, keeping the focus on others and off myself by doing service um, has helped keep me sober. The, the focus on service uh, has has uh, has really given my life purpose. I mean, I'm still not working. I, I literally smashed my career. <laughs> I did so much damage to my reputation that I don't know that I could uh, ever get back into that line of work again. But I don't really care. I have a different set of priorities in my life now. And uh, and the reward I get about uh, helping others and being able to talk to LGBTQ Youth especially, that are struggling and and for to talk to to other people who who just do not have any desire to have religion or uh, any of that kind of uh, stuff spoon fed to them um and, and approach this AA program from a completely secular point of view. Um, you know, if, 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 I can make someone else else's journey a little bit faster to sobriety than mine was, you know, I think that that's a great thing that I can help with, you know, but if it doesn't happen for them, you know, it, it's their journey, not mine. I can't make other people sober. Um, uh, Just like, you know, my first sponsor didn't make me sober. My second sponsor didn't make me sober. And my third sponsor, my current sponsor, my 41-year sober sponsor, he didn't make me sober. It was me and my open-mindedness, my willingness, and my honesty, finally, that led to my sobriety. And now that I have it, I don't want to let go of it. I'm holding on to it like a life preserver. You know, I'm holding on to my sobriety now the way I used to hold on to a bottle of vodka. Like with a death grip. um it it really has been the greatest gift uh, in my life that I uh I finally um I don't know. I, I just find I you know I, I don't know I, I don't know what else to call it I just have kind of had a transformation um, and uh, it took a lot of different experiences um, some aha moments uh, but I kind of filed them all away over the course of the, of the time of this long period from 2003 when I first yeah, I think there's something wrong to 2017 when I was like, yeah, I think I need to be committed and locked up because I cannot fucking stay away from a bottle of booze if I'm a free man to walk around and wander into a liquor store. And uh, that's what it took for me to clear my head long enough to actually start thinking about and looking at myself And my beliefs, my actions, my reactions over the course of my life and come to terms with everything. And now that I've done that and I continue to do that every day because it is a daily reprieve based on working some principles like honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, courage, integrity, perseverance, love understanding tolerance patience you know who can fault that those are all good things and they made me much happier so all right i think i did uh enough damage to the time frame on the meeting (laughs) but you told me i could share as long as i wanted to so anyway thank you so much for inviting me to speak at this meeting um and I'm uh, very grateful because uh, all of you help me stay sober every day. And uh, with that, uh, thanks, Marsha. I'll turn it back to you.